Welcome to the Global Investor Podcast, a show that focuses on helping foreign investors enter the lucrative U.S. real estate market. Host Charles Carrillo combines decades of real estate investing experience with a professional background in international banking to interview experts in all areas of U.S. real estate investing. Now, here's your host, Charles Carrillo. Welcome to another episode of the Global Investors Podcast. I'm your host, Charles Crillo. Today, we have Adrian Washington. Adrian has over 30 years of experience in urban real estate development, construction, and management. Since founding NDC in 1999, he has led the development of over 1 million square feet of real estate with an active pipeline of another million more. So thank you so much for being on the show, Adrian. Thanks, Charles. Great to be here. So can you tell us a little bit about yourself, both personally and professionally, before getting involved in real estate investing? Well, sure. Um, I uh, grew up in Washington, D.C. I mean, actually, I was born in France, but I only spent three months there. So uh, I can't really count myself as a, uh, you know, as a French expat. But uh, uh, so I grew up in Washington, D.C., uh, went to school out in California at Stanford University um, and worked out there three years uh, in corporate America. Left that, went back east to get my MBA from the Harvard Business School and was up in Boston for two years. Great time up there. Came back to D.C. Uh, as a management consultant working, you know, at high value strategic uh, planning, uh, consulting for Fortune 50 companies and did that for about three years. And so I was really uh, only at age 30 before I launched my real estate career. Oh, wow. And why did you choose real estate as your investment vehicle? Well, it's a classic thing for an entrepreneur is that um, I did it as a hobby and uh, liked it a lot better than the job I was doing and had the entrepreneurial bug and thought I could be successful in it. And so um, when looking around, I, I wanted to you know, leave a bigger firm. I wanted to start my own thing. And I was uh, investing and renovating real estate on the side and said, this is what I love. And so I decided to make it a business. And that was 30 years ago. So what were your first real estate investments? What were you starting with? What type of properties? Well, I guess the typical, you know, really the first one was actually my own home. I, uh, when I moved back to DC, um, I purchased a home in a, you know, kind of, uh, you know, rundown, but up and coming neighborhood and, um, you know, started to really renovate that. And I had, you know, hired some contractors. They didn't work out. I ended up, you know, literally doing a lot of work myself. I mean, literally, Charles, I was, you know, doing carpentry and sanding floors and plumbing. And, and you know, I loved it. Uh, and I would do this after like a 12-hour day as a management consultant. I was a lot younger, had a lot more energy then. <laughs> so, uh, you know, I loved it. So it was my own home. And what I saw was, you know, two things that have continued to, dr to drive me. One was the great returns. I mean, we, you know, we, we bought a property for X, we put in, you know, Y amount of capital on top of that in the renovation and voila, the value was much higher than, you know, X plus Y. So I saw the value in that. And then from a, you know, just a, a personal um, satisfaction uh, point of view, uh, I liked the beauty of transformation. I liked using uh, my ingenuity, uh, my creativity, my capital market skills, um, everything to take something that was, you know, not really usable, turn into something that was beautiful and usable and could benefit myself, could benefit the communities around me. And I just love that transformation. It made me feel like I was really producing something. And so the ability to, you know, to drive excellent returns and ability to create were two things that just captivated me. Wow. 
Interesting. Uh, how did your, or what is your firm's current investment strategy right now with what you guys are developing, what you guys are keeping, what you guys are selling? Okay. So uh, we are, we're balanced in that regard. Uh, 80% of our development is in residential, about 20% is commercial. Uh, within that product mix, we do a number of things. We do very mission-driven projects. We do uh, affordable housing that, you know, works for lower moderate income people. And we do very high end uh, housing. So, I mean, in the same year, we can be doing a project where we're, you know, the condos in itself are over a million dollars, and we could do another project where the condos are selling for a hundred thousand. And, you know, the million dollar ones are, you know, nicer than the hundred thousand dollar ones, but they're not like night and day. The hundred thousand ones are still um, high quality, great places for people to live. It's just that you finance them differently. But, uh, you know, Charles, go back to your question. I'd say, you know, about you know, 80% of, of the stuff we do, we end up exiting either, say in the case of a condo, you're selling them to the public, obviously they're buying units, or in the case of a rental building, you uh, will exit that through either refinancing to, you know, exit your investors or to a sell to a third party. So I'd say about, you know, 70, 80% of stuff we exit upon development and about 20 to 30% we keep for a long-term hold. So with everything with affordable housing, because you said like it's not night and day between these really nice properties and the ones that you're building for 100000 how is the financing differ between it? Because I see with like where we are after COVID or at this part of COVID, the increase in construction costs, you have labor shortages. I mean, it's, must, it's very expensive to build. And how are you making that profitable for you and your investors with affordable housing? Even though, I mean, it's fantastic for your, your community. I'm aware of that, but just mm -hmm. for you. Yeah, no, I mean, it's interesting. I mean, one of, you know, my sort of thoughts when COVID first happened was that construction prices would go down. Uh, I thought there'd mm -hmm. be less demand, that subcontracts would be hungry for work, and that didn't happen at all. <laughs> I think there was a little bit of lull in the beginning when people started to figure it out, but since then, prices have continued to increase. And also, as you probably know, particularly in the raw materials cost, wood and steel have gone up tremendously, especially recently, because of supply chain challenges. And so that's been a challenge as well. So going back to affordable housing, the way you make it work is essentially with the government's money. There are numerous programs, both through the tax code in terms of tax credits, we can talk about that. Uh, there are you know, low interest, uh, you know, subsidized debt on it. Uh, there is what's called gap financing that can come from uh, a local government, from the federal government. And essentially what's uh, done in the situation is that, you know, the governments want this as an important need, but they realize that developers are still taking risk and making effort. And so they allow us to uh, either earn a profit, uh, charge fees, et cetera. And what our investors do is they share in that. So they may provide, uh, you know, initial seed capital to get the project running. And then when the government financing comes in, that's taken out, there's a profit allowed on that. Or there could be, you know, large development fees the developer earns and to the extent that uh, our investors invest in that, we'll give them a share of that portion. Oh, that's very interesting. And are those tax credits, you said a lot of uh, local, is there a lot of federal programs like that as well? Or is it mostly- there's a federal tax code um, program. Um, one of them is the biggest one probably is the local in low income housing tax credit mm -hmm. or, or LIHTC is the acronym. Um, that is typically syndicated through large money center banks. But there are also you know, a lot of uh, programs where these tax credits can be earned 
by, you know, individual, you know, high net worth investors. So for instance, the Opportunity Zone program, we've used that to finance some of our projects. And those are projects where we've been able to create, you know, uh, friends and family types of syndicates where, you know, you might invest 50,000, 100,000, one of our projects, we're able to pass on those Opportunity Zone tax credits to you. And, you know, it's, it, there's a lot going on in that program, but they provide very nice returns. And in addition to tax breaks, we're able to provide a market rate return on your investment. So you get the, the double benefit of tax breaks and market rate returns. I've seen the LIHTC properties be advertised from brokers before, and I had some partners before that would say um, they kind of like veered away from them. What, mm -hmm. How does that differ uh, if you're selling a property like that, the new owner that's buying that property? What kind of, how does that, how does what they, what they can and can't do change after uh, in buying a property with that? Well, it depends on the program. What we've seen a lot of times is that the original developer like ours and maybe some, some partners we have will stay in a property through what's called a compliance period. The typical mm -hmm. compliance period, every program is different, but for LIHTC, typically there's a 15-year compliance period through which mm -hmm. you need to keep the properties affordable. After that, it starts to burn off. In some cases, it burns off right away. In other cases, it burns off over time. And at that point, these properties can be converted to market rate. Uh, or they can be resyndicated. Let's say the property needs a refresh, and you can go back into the tax credit program, use tax credits to do that, and earn additional fees on that. So typically, what we see is developers like ourselves will develop the property, bring it online, stabilize it, hold it through the bulk of that compliance period, mm -hmm. and then do some type of exit, either an internal exit where we might shift it from you know one entity we own to another, bringing in new investors as long as the cash out, or actually selling it to a third party who can then reap the benefits of that end of the compliance period. Oh, that's very interesting. So you're having different investors that are interested in investing uh, or financing, I guess you would say, investing in different stages of the project, whether it's the construction or whether it's the longer term when it's more of a stabilized asset. So that's great. Exactly. So how has COVID impacted your business? We talked about, you know, labor, we talked about raw materials. Uh, has demand changed where you are? Has, uh, I mean, what else have you seen over the last 20 or 12 months? Let's say. Yeah. Yeah. I mean, it depends on different sectors. I mean, we're not really in the office sector that I think that sector has been impacted tremendously, mm -hmm. both by um, reduced demand uh, for office space, as well as, you know, vacancies, uh, companies not being able to pay the bills. That hasn't really shown up so much currently. Um, I think it will show up in a few years down the road when these leases start to roll over and tenants either vacate or, you know, really push for consensus. So, I mean, luckily for us, we're not really exposed there. We have some exposure in retail. I think that's also been challenged. I think it depends, though, on the type. I think, you know, sort of uh, what's called... Um, neighborhood services, retail, it still continues to do strong. So you've got your, um, your grocers, your convenience stores, you know, those have continued to do well. Other types like say, for instance, clothing. I mean, you know, we're sitting here in our casual clothes, you know, in our, in our homes. And so no one's like going out and buying a new suit. So clothing like that has been affected. Um, but actually it's part of a longer term trend yeah. where, uh, you know, e-commerce is can you do that? So again, it's not a big part of our business, but we do have some assets there. And so we've had to face, you know, 
restructure those and, and find ways to make those work. I think in a big part of though, what we do, we've been very fortunate to be well positioned. So on our affordable housing portfolio, demand there has continued to be strong. Even though our residents were affected by COVID in different ways and some of them were exposed to job losses, because these properties are so desirable because they are high quality properties that someone at a lower moderate income can afford. They really want to hold on to that. I mean, our waiting list for these properties are years long. Mm -hmm. And so when someone is fortunate enough to get into one of them, they want to stay there. I mean, our, we have very low turnover. We have, you know, several buildings where tenants moved in on day one and they're still there, you know, 10, 15 years later. So those wow. tenants were very motivated to stay in, very motivated to stay current on their, um, on, on their rent payments, uh, the various stimulus stimulus check payments uh, programs really helped in that regard. So our affordable portfolio, you know, did really well. I think another area where we are doing well and are going to do well are in our condominium for sale. What we have found that there has been a tremendous demand. One of the you know sort of post-COVID investment theses we see is that people be much more interested in their home environment. You know, they're not going to work from home you know, five days a week, but they are much more inclined now, hey, I'm going to work from home on Friday, or I'm going to work from home on Monday, make it a three-day weekend, not do that commute. And so they're, and also because they're not spending on things like commuting, they're not going to movies as much, they have more disposable income. So we see demand for our for-sale product even stronger than before. Condo sales have, uh, certainly in our market areas, have increased both in terms of volume and pricing. So again, I think that's a, a great, we're well positioned to take advantage of the COVID and post-COVID environment. Yeah, I definitely agree with what you're saying about office. I don't know if people are going to get rid of their offices altogether, but I feel that someone, when that renewal comes up, they might not be taking 30,000 square feet. They might take 10,000 square feet. Absolutely. And they might have people come in on Mondays and Thursdays and someone else on Monday and Wednesdays or whatever it might be. And um, I feel that's kind of the new normal. But speaking about that, where we are in mid-2021, what do you see for the next 12 to 24 months in residential and commercial real estate um, as people, as I guess we're getting back to more normal little by little with the vaccines and everything else? Mm -hmm. Well, no, I mean, again, our investment thesis is that people will, A, value their home environment more because they're spending more time there. Uh, they're going to want more privacy. So I think that, uh, you know, for sale, whether it's a you know, a single family home, a town home or a condominium will become more valuable. People have more disposable income, they're gonna spend more mm -hmm. time. So it certainly says that that type of product, uh, residential, particularly for sale residential, uh, will do uh, really well. Interest rates, even though they've ticked up a bit, you know, a few basis points over the last two months or so, they're still, you know, compared to historical norms, you know, really low. And, you know, I think that the Fed will, you know, you know, will watch out and and you know continue to monitor the situation but i think they've made a firm statement that they are committed to a low interest rate environment for the next several years i think that will be a boost to um, home sales and you know as we rotate out of other classes like office there 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 may be opportunities for office conversion so i think there's been a lot of interest 
you know, uh, lately, um, especially for older inefficient office buildings, say your class B and your class C properties, that as construction costs uh, continue to rise, that we're looking at buildings like these opportunities for conversion from office to residential, the structures in place, the utility infrastructures in place. Um, so, and the value of the office building has gone down. And so from a, you know, economic perspective, the replacement cost um, is much lower there. And so I think you'll start to see some of these, particularly as you pointed out, Charles, that, you know, these, these leases start to roll and, and people are taking less and less space. And so building on them and say, hey, you know, if I'm going to be only, you know, 60% occupied, I might as well just go ahead and, and let people go and be zero occupied and, and sell this asset to a residential developer. Interesting. Is there anything with, you know, we've seen, you know, the interest rates going down, we've seen so much money printing in the last 12 months. Are you worried about anything in the economy um, that might have an effect as well on real estate or anywhere parts of the economy? I mean, are, is there anything that you're watching mm -hmm. that you think might come back? Mm -hmm. Well, I mean, I'm not an economist and you can see right, there's definitely. sort of no crystal ball here. So, <laughs> I mean, your guess is as good as mine, but I mean, you know, my prediction and, and what, you know, we are uh, structuring our activities around is a continued relatively low uh, uh, interest rate environment a uh, maybe a bit of surge of inflation uh, in 2021, 2Q, 3Q, as all of that pent up, you know, capital comes back into play as people get vaccinated, get back out there, start going to restaurants again. So maybe a bit of inflation there. I think we've seen some in fuel costs um, mm -hmm. in certain commodities as more driven by, I think, um, supply chain difficulties than you know, than necessarily increased demand, but that that will moderate over time. I mean, I think that we are in a secular, low inflation environment. Um, I mean, that's sort of a whole different subject, but, yeah. you know, our belief is, you know, has to do with, you know, kind of the demographic changes uh, going on, uh, you know, uh, lower workforce, things like that. And so, you know, we don't see any surge in inflation. And so I think it's really about, and then I guess another niche we talk about is kind of a lot of people talking real estate is, is urban, suburban kind of mix and how that will change. I think that the post COVID environment will be, you know, slightly advantageous for suburban versus urban. I think that, um, you know, I think there was a big shift as, you know, two things, one from a health perspective is, you know, people began, you know, concerned about um, living in closer quarters and particularly people who had relied on public transportation. I think that, you know, that will be kind of slow to recover. And so I think that, you know, both suburban kind of satellite office spaces, as well as people saying, hey, I don't need to be as close into the city because I'm only going to commute in two or three times a week as opposed to, you know, five or six times a week. So I think there will be a slight advantage, but not necessarily to sort of the far out suburbs. I think that some of maybe the first ring suburbs um, that are away from downtown, but not so far away that you can't get in when you need to, I think there's a lot of opportunity there. And so we see a lot of opportunity for, um, conversion of uh, places there. I think one particular thing we, we sort of see is sort of taking one disadvantage and one advantage is that a lot of the, with the retail compression, there are a lot of kind of aging, smaller shopping centers that are no longer, you know, economically viable, but great places to do uh, mixed use, um, maybe, you know, low scale, 
townhouse communities with like some convenience shopping, you see a lot of conversion opportunities there in a the close in suburb. So that's something that we're yeah. taking a look at. It's amazing. I mean, there's a lot of this that was accelerated with COVID, but there's been so many changes that have kind of started from this mm-hmm. uh, just, uh, just a year ago. So what do you think are the main factors that have contributed to your success? I think that, um, well, luck, first of all, I, mean, I always like to, to be humble and, and to give credit. Uh, I think we've been in some good situations at the right time. But besides that, I think um, development is, you know, it, it's a great industry in that there's so many different ways to do things. And I think it's about picking a strategy, picking a niche and getting better at it. And so we have, we, you know, we, you know, felt early on that, you know, there was a, a, a urban strategy that really worked, that people were looking for uh, places to live that were interesting, that were uh, in walking distance, that, you know, that had that dynamism of the city, but that had sort of private places where you could kind of go and decompress when you couldn't want to be there. So I think that was a good strategy for us. We were there early and has served as well. And then just from a personal perspective, um, you know, we get this all the time is development is, is, you know, being it's perseverance is rolling with the punches. It's reacting to, you know, unusual circumstances, being quick to react to opportunities, sort of seeing those. And so it's really like a, you know, it is to me kind of like the premier kind of entrepreneurial environment, even the biggest firms in real estate uh, have entrepreneurial characteristics where they are opportunistic, where there are, you know, very few layers between the top and the bottom and where, you know, your gut instincts and uh, your, you know, your, your moxie uh, are the keys to success. Interesting. Very interesting. So how can our uh, listeners learn more about you and your business, Adrian? Okay, well, go to our website, www.neighborhooddevelopment.com. Neighborhood development, all one word. Uh, and there are links there to our various social media platforms, LinkedIn, Instagram, et cetera. Awesome. Well, great. I will put those links into the show notes. Thank you so much for coming on today and uh, looking forward to connecting with you in the near future. Okay, my pleasure, Charles. Hi, guys. It's Charles from the Global Investors Podcast. I hope you enjoyed the show. If you're interested in getting involved with real estate, but you don't know where to begin, set up a free 30-minute strategy call with me at ScheduleCharles.com. That's ScheduleCharles.com. Thank you. Thank you for listening to the Global Investor Podcast. If you like the show, be sure to subscribe on iTunes or Google Play to get new weekly episodes. For more resources and to receive our newsletter, please visit globalinvestorpodcast.com. And don't forget to join us next week for another episode. Nothing in this episode should be considered specific, personal, or professional advice. Any investment opportunities mentioned on this podcast are limited to accredited investors. Any investments will only be made with proper disclosure, subscription documentation, and are subject to all applicable laws. Please consult an appropriate tax, legal, real estate, financial, or business professional for individualized advice. Opinions of guests are their own. Information is not guaranteed. All investment strategies have the potential for profit or loss. The host is operating on behalf of Syndication Superstars, LLC, exclusively.